Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room uh, in the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, let that, one, uh, let that one be a gift to you. We value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. We, we also believe it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we would love for you to take that one home and call it yours. Um, that clip that we just watched, I know it was a, a long one, um, but there's a lot that's going on there. Uh, that, is a, that is from a movie called Luther. You saw the little menu uh, right at the, at the start of it. Um, it is a dramatized retelling of the story of Martin Luther's side of things during the Protestant Reformation, or at least at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And I say dramatized because it's, it's highly dramatized. There was a lot of stuff that happened in that clip that was complete, uh, an effort to fill out the narrative of a movie. You got to do those kinds of things because you're, you're pulling stuff from historical uh, work and, and you don't have all the little conversations that happen. You don't have every little piece of narrative. And so you got to fill some of that stuff out in a, in a movie form. Uh, but a lot of that dialogue a lot of that dialogue is actually pulled directly from documents and letters and public speeches that happened during that period. And so John Tetzel, the indulgence preacher, really did quip, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? He really did uh, uh, sell a full indulgence. Um, uh, that indulgence was offered through the Pope by uh, the Archbishop of Mites, who bought that position, all right, Outside of canon law, he took out a loan and paid off his ability to buy a position he should have never had. And he repaid that loan by selling that full salvation indulgence. Pope Leo X really did ignore canon law so he could take in that money and pour it into the building of St. Peter's. Right? So those are things that actually happen. So while there's a lot of artistic license in that, and while there's a lot of things like Martin Luther didn't look like a movie star, you may... That may be a shock to you. All right? um, so there's a lot of artistic license in there, but man, at the same time, it, it may be by a long way the best version of that story, the accounts of what actually happened, at least in movie form, that you can get your hands on. All right? And so uh, that's the reason why I wanted to show um, that, that clip this morning. Um, there were a lot of things that... Uh, that happened before those events. But by and large, uh, those two events, the preaching, the indulgence preaching of Tetzel and Luther's response by nailing the 95, th 95 theses on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, all right, most scholars point to those two events as the moment that kick-started the Protestant Reformation. Right? That, that clip happens about halfway through the movie, so there's a lot of stuff that happens before that, but most people point to that moment as that's when the Protestant Reformation started. What was Martin Luther doing? Well, he was trying desperately to correct the church that he loved dearly, right? He wouldn't try to set the world on fire. wouldn't try to start a riot. He was trying to correct the church that he loved, that he saw walking away from the authority of God's word. That he saw walking away from the, the gospel so clearly laid out in the Bible. That is now that it exchanged it for a convoluted and manipulative, twisted version, predatory version, even, where you bought indulgences and you venerated icons and relics, right? So Martin Luther nails 95 theses, or somehow those 
those theses end up on the door at the church at Wittenberg. It was all an attempt to love the church well. His righteous anger caused him to do something about the problem, right? And even though the divide between Protestant and Catholic wasn't originally intended, it became the inevitable consequence once the Catholic Church decided that, you know what, I am not going to just listen to the authority of the Scriptures. I am going to do it my own way. I'm going to declare my authority. So um, there's a Latin phrase that scholars have come to attach to the Protestant Reformation. Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda secundum verbum die. I think we have it up on the screen, do we? So you can see it? Maybe, maybe not. All right. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. There it is. Secundum verbum die. The church reformed, that's with a capital C and a capital R. The church reformed, always being reformed according to the word of God. Now, that, that phrase has existed in various forms throughout the last few centuries, and the current form didn't really exist until after World War II. All right? So it's something that scholars have looked back on the Protestant Reformation and said that really defines the Reformation. All right? But here's the thing. It perfectly encapsulates what happened at the Reformation. I mean, think about it for a second. That the church, if it could properly be called the church, must be shaped by the Bible. And if it's not shaped by the Bible, if it's not being constantly shaped by the Bible, is it really fair to call it God's church? Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbum die. So why do we bring all this up this morning? Well, I mean, we don't typically start out our sermons with a 10-minute video clip, right? Why do we bring it up? A couple of reasons. Number one, because those 95 theses ended up on the door of the Castle Church of Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Which means that this Tuesday will mark the 500th anniversary of that event. I'm not 500 years old, are you? The 500th anniversary, like Tuesday, October 31st. Like I get it that, that Halloween is a big deal in New England. That's something that all the transplants in the room have had to come to terms with. All right? uh, yeah. <laughs> All the transplants think y'all are a little bit weird, but it's okay, we're, we're catching up to speed. N Halloween is a massive deal in New England, but theology nerds, like me, have been calling October 31st Reformation Day for a few centuries. Anytime the 500th anniversary of an event passes by, if it passes by unnoticed, should that cause some, some frustration in people? We should probably at least understand history well enough to know that when the 500th anniversary of something happens that we need to pay attention to it. What about the 500th anniversary of the seminal event that returned God's church to the primacy and the valuing of God's word over and above everything else? Should that be important to us? Should we maybe at least mention it? Maybe a little bit. But there's a second reason why we bring all this up this morning. Because Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbum Die is also, also implied where we are in our Ephesians text. All right? Everything the Protestant Reformation stood for is implied in the text that we're going to look at today out of our Ephesians series. Is our God big enough to pull that off? Yep. Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at one verse this morning. It's a verse that we've already spent some time on. 
Uh, Les stood up here last week and unpacked, I think faithfully, uh, the first eight verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, the first eight verses deal mostly with uh, the unity of the church in response to what God has done, right? And so Les spent most of his time on that. I, I'm biased, but I happen to think he did a dynamite job. Uh, but he spent a little bit of time on verse 1. And because of our historical context today, I, man, there's something massive here that we need to pay attention to. So you ready for it? Verse 1. I, therefore, time out. We've, we've spent a, a lot of time in this series already talking about the necessity to understand our context when this word starts out our, our text for the morning, right? That to, to walk into our unpacking of our scripture for the morning, it, to, do, to see a therefore without really understanding the, the shoulders that it's standing on is dangerous, right? Paul says, Therefore, we've seen Paul use this kind of phrase over and over again, right? Therefore, therefore, therefore. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul throws out that therefore a few times in important places, right? And he normally uses it to move from one propositional truth claim to the next, all right? And, and so maybe, maybe you're new. Let's walk through the big home run ones uh, in the first three chapters real quick, right? So Paul starts out chapter one by saying God's plan is eternal, He's not making this up as he goes. He's not just winging it. No, his plan is from before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us. And then chapter two, he moves on from there to say that we are a part of that eternal plan. That though we've been separated by our trespasses and sins, though we are dead naturally, spiritually, all right, we, have, we are being made alive. Because of God's grace, because of God's great love, because God is rich in mercy, not because anything is owed to us, but because God's plan is eternal and because he has placed his affections on us, therefore God does something about that. He moves from one propositional truth claim to the next. And so he moves on from there. Uh, because those two things are true, therefore God is also uniting us to each other as he unites us to himself. Bunch of ragtags who don't belong in a room together gathered into a room together and he calls it the church. That what God is doing to unite us together is not independent from all the other things he's doing. It's a part of his eternal plan that has existed from before the foundation of the world. He unites us to himself. He unites us to each other. Truth, therefore leading to truth, therefore leading to truth, therefore leading to truth. And so here, Paul, again, Paul says, therefore. But this time he's not going to move to the next logical propositional truth claim. He's not just going to go the next link down the chain. Paul is going to launch into how we respond to all these truth claims. Les threw out a couple of ten-cent words last week. You may or may not have caught them. You remember what they were? They both started with an I. Indicative and, oh, y'all are such bad students. Imperative, imperative, indicative and imperative. He mentioned those. You need to pay attention when he preaches. All right, indicative and imperative. And it, what's indicative? What's, what's an indicative? It's a truth, right? Something that indicative and something that teaches something that's a truth, all right? What's an imperative? A command. Not a suggestion, a command. Remember Paul's tone here? When, when we talked uh, in our very first week, we kicked this stuff back off in July. Um, 
Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 1, calls himself an apostle, right? That means he has apostolic authority. When Paul writes a letter, this isn't a bunch of suggestions to make the church better. There's authority here. There's command here, right? So indicative and imperative. Paul is not simply making some suggestions for our improvement. He's saying that because all these things are true, therefore, this is how you should live. This time, the therefore is not just the next logical step. It is a bomb dropped in the middle of your life that changes everything. Weighty therefore this time, isn't it? Paul is going to flesh out the only right response in light of these eternity-shaking truth claims. And so let's look at the rest of verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So there's some vocabulary words that would probably be helpful for us to flesh out this morning. So let's just start with some low-hanging fruit. What does it mean to walk? Is he talking about a certain type of moving from point A to point B? No, right? He's not talking about your gait, your stride, your strut, whatever you want to call it. He's talking about how you live, right? How you walk is how you live. I know it's a little hanging fruit, but hey, maybe you're, you're not thinking the same thing. Let's get everybody on the same page here. All right? um, how you walk is how you live. And he says, walk, live in a manner that's what? Worthy. Begs a question. Does the way that you live matter? It begs the question because we live in a culture that's, let's be honest here, sometimes the, we want to fight for the answer no, right? Is anybody else paying attention to the world that we live in? I mean, isn't that kind of the, the air we breathe sometimes? Don't we, don't we kind of want to argue no? But let's... let's flesh out some rudimentary ways of looking at this. Just as a blanket, yes or no. Does the way that you live, can it affect the length of your life? Yeah, right? Like, if you constantly participate in something that ends up giving you cancer, is that going to affect the length of your life? Right? If you're really into exercise, is that going to affect the length of your life? If you watch what you eat, instead of, like me, going back for a second barbecue pork sandwich last night, is that going to affect the length of your life? Yeah. If you really love skydiving and have always daydreamed about skydiving without a parachute and you finally act on that, is it going to affect the length of your life? So the way you live at least matters there, right? Can the way that you live affect who wants to associate with you? Who's around you in your life? Can you live in such a way that people flock to you? Can you live in such a way that people avoid you? Yeah. Can you live in such a way that affects the freedom of your life? Can you do something that's highly illegal and end up rightly being thrown in jail? What if you live under terrible oppression and you decide that you're going to spend your life revolting against it? Is that going to affect your freedom? Yeah. Absolutely it will. Does the way that you live matter? Yeah, I think it does. 
We may disagree sometimes on what exactly belongs in what categories and who has the right to put them there. But all of us instinctively get that the way we live matters. It matters at least to you. But it matters to a lot of people beside you as well, doesn't it? I mean, I've got a wife and two kids. Do the decisions that I make affect them? Absolutely. Paul here says that our lives ought to be lived out in a manner that's worthy. But worthy of what? Like our own claimed self-identity? Maybe. What if it's deeper than that? Our own sense of who we ought to be? Maybe. But what if it's deeper than that, right? He says, walk in a manner of, that is worthy of which you have been, what's the word? So what have we been called? Well, according to the first three chapters of Ephesians, we've been called a few things, if you've been paying attention. We've been called the reconciled, right? That's Ephesians 2. We have been called a temple of the Lord. We've been called the reconciled. We've been called a temple of the Lord. We've been called spiritually alive. We have been called reflections of his glory, both individually and corporately. Paul says that our lives should be lived out in such a way that is immediately apparent of who it is we belong to. The Bible teaches that we haven't just been invited reconciled back to God that we've been adopted into his family therefore we are now sons and daughters of the king there are things about my kids that are very much from me those of you with kids y'all know that kind of stuff you got you got stuff that's very much from mom you got stuff that's very much from dad you got stuff that's kind of a weird mixture of the two and you got stuff that's just kind of uniquely them right it's just the way it works there are things about my kids that are absolutely from me all right like, just for instance, our two-year-old, Will, th- that kid looks just like me. It's scary, all right? It's, it's bad, man. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those uncanny things, and I know probably y'all have walked through that in different ways and different seasons, but, man, Will Woodard looks exactly like his old man. But it goes far deeper than just the physical. He is also just as accident-prone as I am. Have you discovered this about our personalities yet? It's going to come. <laughs> we'll, my clumsiness will make its presence known in your life at some point. All right? No, Will is, he is clumsy as the day is long, man. And most of it's because he's not paying attention and neither do I. Like, I'm going to fall off the stage one day. All right? <laughs> no, the kid's clumsy as the day is long. He is going to be our tough kid, but it's not because he just has this natural stiff upper lip. It's because life is going to beat it into him. Right? He's going to have to be the kind of person that pops up after the fall or else he's going to stay on the ground all the time. There are things about Will Woodard that if you watch him with any intentionality at all for even a couple of minutes, you're going to immediately discover who he belongs to. Paul says, Paul says that we are to walk, to live in a manner that is worthy of that which we have been called. That we are to live in such a way that bears testimony to our new identities but we're about to celebrate reformation day 
And there's something absolutely massive that we need to point out about Ephesians 4.1 this morning. This is in the middle of the letter. Revolutionary, right? Ephesians 4.1 is in the middle of the letter. Got it. Follow me here. This is in the middle of the letter. We didn't start this series back in July by saying, all right, everybody, open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We're halfway through this, right? We're halfway through this. There is eternity-shaking context buried in the word, therefore. Paul is going to flesh out for us a bunch of do's. Do this and do this and do this. But he has spent the first three chapters of this letter avoiding any of those commands. There's not a whole lot of do's in, the, in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. It's a whole bunch of done's. So hear me, follower of Jesus. Your status as one of the redeemed is 100% independent of anything that you bring to the table. We have spent the last three chapters, the first half of this letter, celebrating the done of Jesus, and we have yet to talk about any kind of do. If we put the do before the done, we get the gospel wrong. If we put the imperative, the, the command before the indicative, the truth, we get the gospel wrong. Paul is going to spend the rest of this letter fleshing out how we actually live in response to these new identities that we've been freely given. But if we get the order of these things backwards, we fail all of it. So we're going to constantly, constantly come back to the refrain through the rest of this series that we are operating within the context of therefore. You're going to get tired of hearing me say it. I'm okay with that. But we have to for at least two reasons. Number one, because this is the story of the Bible. Like hear me. The story of the whole Bible, not just Ephesians. This isn't just an Ephesians thing. This is the Bible, right? In the garden, in, in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are given the command to not eat the fruit from the tree, right? You, you've all heard that story. That command is not immediately followed by God saying, so I will let you into my garden. They're already in the garden. They're created in the garden, Right? In Genesis 12, God comes to a pagan idolater named Abram and says, hey, I'm going to love you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great nation. That's their first interaction together. Abraham hasn't proved his worthiness by that point. That's the first time God comes to him. He is a terrible, terrible man when that story starts out. He's not such a great man after the story ends up either. But he has, he has done absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. And God says, hey, I am going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. Abraham belongs. His status as belonging exists long before his ability to obey and before the commands to obey ever enter the picture. In Exodus, uh, Moses and the, the Israelites, they're at the foot of the mountain. Moses goes up. Charlton Heston, I mean, goes up. He gets the, um, he gets the stone tablets. He comes down. All right, God has given them the law, the Ten Commandments, right? But that happens in chapter 20 of Exodus. 
You want to know what happens before all that? The Exodus story. God rescues them out of bondage, rescues them out of literal slavery, right? Brings them, draws them to himself. Especially chapter 19 happens where they're already standing at the foot of the mountain. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then the law is given. Their status as belonging exists before the command to obey. The command to obey is in the context of their belonging. It doesn't make their belonging happen. This is the story of the promised land. This is the story of the judges. This is the story of the Babylonian exile. This is the story of Jesus making all things new. Where we will one day be with him forever, able to obey him, but no longer stained by our sin. This is the story of the Bible. This is the gospel. Any do that is commanded of us is nothing more than the right response to the done that has already been freely given to us. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason we're going to remind ourselves of the proper order of things over and over and over again ad nauseum. And it's because during the medieval period, the Catholic Church stopped doing so. They, they elevated and prioritized their ability to do above the finished done. And it necessitated the Protestant Reformation. They elevated and prioritized their traditions and their authority over the revealed plans and purposes of God's word. They got the order wrong and they lost the gospel entirely. Some of us theology nerds are going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Reformation Day on Tuesday. And it's because God saw fit to love his bride well. And he raised up people within the church who loved the church, who wanted to see the church return to the only thing that ought to be the authority of the church and God rescued him. Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda secundum verbum die. We must be a church that is forever shaped by the Bible. And when the Bible says it's over, it's over. There's no more work to add. And so as we press into God through the scriptures, he will use them to breathe life. He will use them to convict us of sin. He will use them to give, him, to give us himself. And he will use them to shape us into who he wants us to be. Shape us into who he wants us to be individually and who he wants us to be corporately as a body called Nashua Baptist Church. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? For the follower of Jesus, we press into God who not only doesn't need your help in saving you, it's actually repugnant to him that you would continue to try. Have you ever thought about that? Is there anything that you can offer him that is not already owed to him? What are you going to give him? You can't meet him halfway. Are you serious? We press into a God who doesn't need your help to save you. you will either, he will either have you trust him fully or not at all. You submit to what he has done. So as we begin, we begin to walk through the natural outwork, the natural outflowing in the last three chapters of Ephesians. Hear me, guys. 
we have to leave earning off the table. It's not an option here. We can't earn anything. It doesn't belong here. This is about aligning yourself with our new identity. This is about looking like what he has already joyfully declared us to be. Some of us may need to repent this morning of doubting his goodness and assuming too much of our own effort. We want to give you an opportunity to do exactly that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It's a chance for all of us to respond to what God's calling in our hearts this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. I say all the time that I hope that you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. So here's the gospel this morning. Because of your sin, not just our sin, although that's an issue, because of your sin, you are separated from God. Oh, but he is good. And he is rich in mercy. And he loves with a great love. And even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive by grace that you will be saved. So maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, but for the very first time you want to say, yeah, let's do this. We want to give you a chance to respond too. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you as well to repent of your sin and come to Jesus as Lord. We're going to have some folks down here in the front to talk if that's something that's helpful for you. That's a decision that happens on a heart level though. We're glad to help. Praying a prayer is not what gets the, do- the job done. It's you repenting on an internal level. So we want to give you an opportunity to do exactly that. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God who has done everything that we will ever need. God, there's nothing that I could bring to the table. There's nothing that I have to offer that's not already owed to you. But in your goodness, you love me anyway. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for giving us a Paul who would not confuse the gospel with earning. We want to live in a way that's worthy of our calling. There's things that we may need to repent of in order to do so. Oh, but you've already given us a seat at the table. In your goodness and in your great love for us, you have met us where we were instead of requiring anything that we can't actually bring. God, our hope and our prayer for our church body is that you would unite us together, that you would call us to walk in that worthy way, that you would help us see what that is, that you would give us the courage to take action when that is necessary. But we want far more desperately to know you deeply. And no amount of work will ever do that. Give us yourself. We'll celebrate. Your name.